My name is Susan Leong. I'm a senior building inspector with the Commercial Plan Check Division. My colleague Neil Freeman will be doing part two. When people think about disability access, they think of, oh no, it's City Hall. City Hall is after my money. They want to find ways to, uh, to separate me from my money. But that's not what it's about at all, really. It's about civil rights, and it's civil rights legislation that led to the inclusion in the building codes. Um, and really, bottom line, it's really about equal treatment for everyone. And just think of it also as an investment into your business, because when you make your place more accessible, then a larger group of people can visit your place of business and purchase your goods and services. The purpose of this code is to provide minimum standards to safeguard life, limb, health, property, and public welfare. That's found in the California Building Code 101.2 purpose. And with the inclusion of the civil rights legislation, the purpose of this code is to ensure that barrier-free design is incorporated in all buildings and facilities and site work. So this is what we're, as the building department, is charged with, uh, to ensure not only the safety and the health, but also barrier-free design. A lot of people get this concept incorrect. They, they think ADA and Title 24 is the same thing. So here's a little formula that I made up to help you remember. Title 24 is not equal to ADA, okay? I know it's higher math, but just remember, they're not the same thing. A lot of times people come into the department and they say, oh, I want to do an ADA upgrade. That may be true, but we as a department do not enforce ADA. We enforce Title 24. Title 24 is a California state law that we enforce. And ADA is an Americans with Disabilities Act. It's a federal law that we don't enforce, but you are still responsible to make sure that your commercial space or building complies with ADA as well. Requirements for new buildings. Um, this is found in Chapter 11A of the California Building Code for apartments, condos, multifamily dwellings. 11B for public buildings, public accommodation, commercial buildings, and publicly funded housing. Um, they both, in the very early part of the chapter, says... Buildings or portions of buildings shall be accessible to persons with disabilities as required by this chapter. So those are the sections um, that we use to regulate the requirements for disability access for new buildings. Disable access upgrade requirements for commercial occupancies as required by Title 24 of the CBC. We're talking about upgrades. So this is upgrades to existing conditions, because a lot of times people come in and say, well, that's the way it is. That's existing. Uh, it doesn't comply. Well, this is the part where it regulates what we have to do to upgrade the non-complying existing conditions. 1134B says that the provision of this division apply to renovation, structural repair, alteration, and additions to existing buildings. So anytime you come in for a uh, tenant improvement work, whether it's... Um, moving some walls around or structural repair, um, it triggers this section, um, the requirement to upgrade your existing conditions uh, for disability access. People come in and they say, well, I'm just doing a foundation repair, and I don't want to do any disability upgrades. And we say, well, your foundation repair is what's triggering additional work for upgrades. I'm going to tackle some of these frequently asked questions. What dollar amount triggers disabled access upgrade requirements? How much money do I have to spend on upgrades? What kinds of upgrades do I have to do? What if I just need a permit for some dry rot repair? Or what if I have a very small project? Do I have to do any upgrades if I'm the only one working in my office or store and I'm not disabled? 
And what if I have steps in front of my business? If you need a building permit in general, any dollar amount triggers upgrade, with a few exceptions. Exceptions are based on 1134B.2.1, exception 4, projects which consist only of HVAC, re-roofing, electrical work, cosmetic work, and equipment not considered to be a part of the architecture of the building or area. We also include fire alarms, sprinklers, life safety permits, signs, awnings, canopies, and similar, antennas, and cellular sites. So if any of your project falls under those, you are under the exception, and disability access upgrade requires are not triggered. If any dollar amount triggers disable access upgrades, then how much money do I have to spend on upgrades, and what kinds of upgrades do I have to do? In 1134B.2, all existing building and facilities, when alterations, structural repairs, or additions are made to such buildings or facilities, shall comply with all the provisions of Division I new buildings. What does that all mean in a nutshell? Basically, all new work to existing buildings or facilities shall comply as for new buildings. So when you have new work, they have to comply. Let's take an example. You're installing three brand new single accommodation restroom in existing two-story buildings with no elevators. Two of them are on the ground floor, one of them on the second floor. Now here's the test question. Which of these new restrooms have to comply with disabled access requirements? Is it just one of the ground floor restroom? Or maybe it's both of the ground floor restrooms. Or maybe some of you think that, well, we don't need two on the ground floor, surely. We just maybe need one, and maybe one on the second floor, even though we don't have an elevator to get up there. Or maybe some of you think that all three of them have to comply. So what's the answer? All three of them have to comply. Why is that? Because it's new restrooms. All new work have to comply as for new buildings. So even though you're putting a restroom on the second floor where you have to get up the stairs, yes, that second floor restrooms do have to comply with disabled access um, requirements. Required upgrades for existing conditions. Listed in priorities per 1134B, primary entrance, primary path of travel, sanitary facilities, public telephones, drinking fountains, signage, parking, serving the area remodel. So these are the required upgrades that this code says that has to be upgraded, all these things, serving the area remodel. Oops, I know you see your money running away, right? But, oops, there's more money running away. But there is an exception if you are under the threshold, what they call the threshold. Okay, if you're under the threshold, you are eligible for the 20% rule. In general, if your project's over the threshold, you're not eligible for the 20% rule. There are a few exceptions like everything else in life. ENR is the engineering news record published by McGraw-Hill. It's based on an average construction cost index. It's updated every year. And the 2006 threshold amount is $113,586.07. Yes, some, some very smart bean counter said, yes, we really need to have eight significant figures. What does that mean? That means that if your project is $113,586.08, you're over the threshold. So for some reason, we get a lot more projects that are penny under for some reason. I don't know why. But anyway... If your project is under the current threshold, then your disability upgrade requirements are limited to 20% of the estimated construction cost. Example, here's some higher math again. Your project cost without the DA upgrades, 
20% of that is $10,000. That's what's needed in addition for the DA upgrades. And to total project cost, $60,000. Let's go if your project is over the threshold, then your disability upgrade requirements are not limited in most cases. You must upgrade your space building to full compliance. There are certain exceptions to non-elevator buildings, so here's a few for you that I found. There are equivalent facilitation substitutes in the California Building Code and our San Francisco amendments, and you can always take your case to the AAC. Um, my colleague, Neil Freeman, will be talking about later. He is the secretary to the AAC. DBI has a required disabled access checklist form that must be filled out and reproduced as part of your drawing submittal for all commercial TIs. Again, that's any kind of renovation and structural repair, alteration. The only thing is if you're under those exceptions. It's an organized way to ensure all the items are addressed in proper priority. And the forms are available on our website at sfgov.org backslash DBI. What if I just need a permit for some dry rot repair or what if I have a very small project? Okay, I want you to remember the 20% rule, okay? The 20% rule is what we use. There is no project too small for the 20% rule. If your project is under the current threshold, then your upgrade requirements are limited to 20% of the estimated construction cost. For small projects, we know it's very painful because sometimes the drawing, drawings to document the DA upgrades may cost more than the project itself. We acknowledge that. We know it's it's a, it's a lot for small projects, but that's what the code requires, and that's the only way we can make sure um, through your drawings to see what may or may not need to be upgraded. We acknowledge that it's difficult, but um, we do have to do it by law. Do I have to do any upgrades if I'm the only one working in my office or store and I'm not disabled? Well, again, let's repeat that section. As long as you do any TI work, that's what triggers disabled access upgrade. And I think that's one of the main difference, too, between Title 24 and uh, ADA, because Title 24 is triggered when you come in and get a building permit. So once you need a building permit and you don't fall under the exception, Title 24 is triggered. Specific code sections in CBC 11B to, to address specific occupancies. Businesses and professional offices, these are some of the areas that need to be made accessible. Client and visitor areas and office areas together with related toilet rooms, conference areas, counseling rooms, or cubicles, and similar. Here's an example for Group M, which is retail occupancies. Um, general areas, general sales, display, and office area together with related toilet rooms shall be made accessible. So even specific code session says, yes, even if you're the only one working in your office or store and you're not disabled, if you need a building permit to do some TI work, then yes, you still have to upgrade um, per these code requirements. What if I have existing steps in front of my business? If we are under the threshold and it says three-year inclusive because the code does not allow you to try to break up your project into small pieces to get under the threshold, you know, that penny under the threshold, you're not supposed to break it up to avoid being over the threshold. So we look at it from a three-year inclusive way. Apply the 20% rule. First, can I get rid of the steps and replace with a ramp or elevator for 20%? If not, can I put a lift in for 20%? If not, can I make any improvements that will better the existing condition for 20%? So let's go back to our uh, existing steps. We could look at the handrails. Does those handrails have the proper size, shape, dimension, height? If not, maybe we can upgrade those. It looks like they're missing some extension at the bottom of the 
um, steps. It looks like some handrails are missing at those uh, first two steps. And then we could look at the handrail on the other side because it looks like they're missing the extensions. Also, you can put stripings on each one of these steps because they're outdoors and they all need to have contrasting striping. We can look at the door to see whether it's the right width, it has the right hardware, um, maximum effort. So let's go back and review that a little bit. Upgrade handrails, check for all those items, add striping on each step. Upgrades at doors possibly. Um, check off the partial upgrade box on the required DA checklist for primary entrance. Fill out Form C to itemize upgrade expenditures. Fill out unreasonable hardship request form. And if any funds are left over of the 20%, we move on to the next upgrade item on the checklist. So here's what it looks like, our DA checklist that's on the, available on the website. You fill it out. Um, on item five, you pick uh, from box A to G the most appropriate box. In this case, um, box C is really the 20% rule. And so I go along, fill this out. I go to page two of this checklist. And um, under item one, and this is listed in priority, primary entry is the first priority. I check off partial upgrade, and I put the location of the details, which is shown on sheet A1. And then I move on down the list to see what else um, I could do with the 20% if I have any of the 20% left. We go to this Form C, which is Disable Access 20% rule. This is where I itemize my expenditure for the Disable Access upgrade. You know, I'm spending um, 3000 on handrails, 500 on the striping. And then I did move on to the restrooms, and I spent 7000 I spent a total of 10,005, which um, meets actually exceeds my 20%. Unreasonable hardship request forms. This is page one of it. I fill it out. I'm, I'm trying to make my case on why it's unreasonable to make me upgrade all those stairs and, and put in a ramp, elevator, or lift. You check off what you are, agent, whatever, like our agent James Bond. There's a part for our department to whether approve or grant your hardship, or we're going to deny it and send it to the AAC. If you are over the threshold, again, three-year inclusive, you need to provide ramp, elevator, or lift, you, or you can provide an alternate accessible entrance. You could take your case to the Access Appeals Commission after your unreasonable hardship request has been denied, and smile, be happy. We're here to serve you. We know sometimes it could be long and tedious and frustrating, but don't fight it. This is the law, and again, we're here to help you. Um, stay tuned. Part two is next. I'll introduce myself. I'm Neil Friedman, and I'm the Senior Building Inspector for Disabled Access Services, and also I'm the Secretary to the Access Appeals Commission. Um, I've been doing disabled access work for uh, close to 18 years now. I started out in the Mayor's Office on Community Development, uh, where I did architectural work, um, and then I moved over to DBI about 10 years ago. Uh, so as the Secretary to the Access Appeals Commission, I put together the cases uh, that come to the Commission due to being denied an unreasonable hardship by the Commercial Plan Check Division. Here's a floor plan of uh, DBI's building, and I'm going to try this laser pointer. They're, they're not very bright, as I mentioned before, but uh, I hope you can all see that. That's the parking on the left side of the plan. So that would be one of the accessible path of travel elements. And in this particular lot, at our lot, I don't know how many of you have been to our building. I encourage you all to come over there. There's a door right here uh, that leads to an accessible corridor that takes you into the main building area. And if you were approaching from the sidewalk or from parking on the street, 
There's an accessible entrance. Uh, you come in, there's an accessible service counter. Um, there's a path of travel to the two elevators, which are accessible. And there's also a ramp, which will take you up towards the back of the building. Here's parking. This is not our parking. This is actually uh, the Performing Arts Garage on Goffin Hayes. And I'm going to give you the locations of all these buildings. Usually I let them be anonymous, but I think uh, if you're interested in this topic, you can go out and take a look at these features firsthand. And while I'm talking about that, I encourage any of you who are in the design field to at some point go out and find a friend or rent a wheelchair if you can and see what it looks like from a wheelchair perspective to go through path of travel elements. It's quite enlightening. I did it when I first started doing this kind of work a long time ago, and uh, it was a whole new perspective. So uh, in a parking lot, uh, in typical accessible parking, you're going to have an unloading zone. In this case, it happens to be in the middle. You can have all kinds of signage to prevent people from parking in the spaces who don't belong there. And the whole idea with accessible parking is essentially to reserve spaces for people with mobility impairments who have a placard in their van or their car uh, that allows them to legally park in these spaces. Uh, one of the features of this particular lot, and similar to the lot at DBI, is uh, that there's a canopy, an outdoor covering, um, that has an 8'2 clearance that allows for what are called high-top vans to slip underneath out of the weather, unload into the parking unloading zone, and go into a building without having to pass behind another car, or a van in this case. Uh, this is a problem in San Francisco because a lot of the buildings were built before that eight foot two rule came into place. We have uh, ways of dealing that, with that in our administrative buildings. Here's a sign that's also geared towards keeping people out of the spaces uh, who don't belong there. And this is called a tow-away sign because embedded in it will be either a telephone number or an address of whom to call in case your car or van gets towed away because it wasn't, didn't belong in these spaces. Uh, more types of signs. Now, if you're going into a building, uh, especially in San Francisco, often the building might be on a different level from the street. So one of the path of travel elements here is a ramp. And some of the features of the ramp are oops, a curb to prevent people in wheelchairs uh, from sliding off. And it also provides a, uh, a little buffer zone for people with canes so they can feel their way uh, swishing the cane back and forth as they go up the ramp. Uh, there are handrails on both sides. Um, there's an intermediate landing here. It's kind of difficult to see. And the purpose of that is so that if the change in elevation from the street or the parking lot or whatever point you arrive at up to the building entrance is more than 30 inches, you'll have a place to rest if you're in a wheelchair. It's very difficult, if you, especially in a hand-powered wheelchair, to uh, go up a long distance on a ramp. Here's um, the San Francisco Federal Credit Union. This is another means of getting into a building. This is um, a, uh, a lift, which sort of looks like an elevator, but it's not, as you'll see in further slides. This is the interior of it. Uh, it's basically just... Um, a platform with sides and controls, of course. 
that you drive into. And this particular type of lift is called a drive-through lift or a pass-through lift uh, because you're not expected to be able to turn around or anything, in it, obviously, if you're in a wheelchair. Um, so you go up to another level and you just drive out. Okay, here we are at the top level. This particular lift, I believe, rises about eight feet. Lifts are, um, according to the California Elevator Code, uh, allowed to rise a maximum of 11 feet. And beyond that, uh, you need to install an elevator, which can be quite costly. These are expensive, but not nearly as expensive as a, a fully enclosed elevator with full accessible features. Here's the entrance to uh, the DBI building. Um, a couple of the features of this are pretty important to look at. Uh, the door at our building is very heavy, and as a result, it has a power door operator on it. And this is allowed by code, and there's also an administrative bulletin that covers it. Um, one of the features of this is that you can come up and push this button right here, which I'll show in an, an additional slide, and be out of the way of the swing of the door and uh, the door will open, stay open for a certain number of seconds, and then you will go around it and go in. It's useful not just for people in wheelchairs, but for people with uh, baby strollers or carrying heavy bundles. Uh, I use it myself every morning because this door is unbelievably heavy. Here's that, a close-up of that push button. You'll notice that it's got a wheelchair symbol on the button which is in lieu of putting the symbol actually on the door. Somewhere at the accessible entrance, uh, the international symbol of accessibility is required to be present. Okay, here's another uh, door. This is the back door to our building from the outdoor parking lot. Um, some of the features of this are that there's a certain amount of space to the latch, on the latch side of the door to allow a person in a wheelchair to approach it and open it. Uh, this particular door is pretty heavy also. It's allowed to be up to 15 pounds in pressure because it's a rated fire door leading to a rated fire corridor. Uh, again, you'll note the um, international symbol of accessibility. The hardware is a little bit difficult to see on this, but it's a lever type which allows a person with uh, hand impairment or difficulty grasping things to reach up and open it or push it down and and pull it open without actually having to pinch or grasp the handle. Here's, uh, once you're inside the building, a typical hallway. Um, it's got a certain amount of width to it that allows a person in a wheelchair to maneuver down, make a turn, and go to some other area where they can turn around and come back. Uh, hallways have certain dimensions based not only on disabled access, but also um, exiting requirements. Here's another element in the path of travel is an accessible counter. It allows you to do business at our building uh, in an accessible manner. It's a little difficult to see in this slide, but there's actually knee space underneath here for a person in a wheelchair to pull up to the counter and write or do whatever they need to do in the transaction at the counter. The knee space is not always required. It's only required when you allow for seating at the customer side of the counter. Okay, here's um, an elevator. Anytime you have an existing building or especially a new building, uh, with some exceptions, you need, to be able to, you need to be able to get to other floors in an accessible manner. You can do that either by a lift, as I showed before, or an elevator. 
the elevator features in this case for accessibility are the push buttons. There's a symbol on the door jamb that has a raised lettering and also Braille, and that's to allow people with visual impairments to figure out where they are. And then up at the top of the elevator, and it often appears on the top of the jamb, are the up and down lights, and they are for people with hearing impairments who may not know that the elevator is arriving because they're not paying attention, and they'll see the lights come on. The lights are supposed to stay on until the actual elevator arrives, and that's also true for the call buttons in the hallway. Here's the interior of that same elevator. The basic idea here is to allow somebody in a wheelchair with a mobility impairment to come in, turn around, use the buttons, exit. The button panel itself has Braille and has raised buttons so that you can feel everything if you have low vision or a vision impairment. It also has an emergency telephone. It has the floor levels raised also in Braille, and there's a star symbol by the first floor to indicate that that's the main path of exit in an emergency. Here's a typical stairway at the interior. You have striping on the top and the bottom landings and a handrail that's continuous usually on the inside, but one of the handrails needs to be continuous, and it needs handrails on both sides. Here's a typical men's room with the signage on the left side adjacent to the strike edge, and we call that the permanent room signage. It also has Braille on it, and you'll notice that for a men's restroom, there's a triangle shape. It's raised about a quarter inch off the surface of the door substrate, and it allows for people with all sorts of impairments, disabilities, to know what they're getting into. Inside the same restroom, you'll notice at the bottom of the door, there's a smooth panel, and that's required on the push side of doors so that wheelchair footrests don't get trapped by an object on the door. A lot of times you'll see a door stop or something attached to that. It's not legal by code. It's not a good idea because a wheelchair can get hung up on those. And although it doesn't look it in this photograph, there's actually enough room between the door and this wall facing it for a wheelchair to position itself and push its way out. You'll notice right here is a towel dispenser, and one of the main features of restroom accessories are that the height is within an accessible reach range for all the operating parts. In this case, the operating part is where you pull the paper out. Here's a women's restroom. You note that the sign on the door is circular to give people with vision impairment an idea of what they're getting into. Here's the restroom stall in an accessible restroom. Some of the features of this are that there has to be a certain width to get to the stall. There usually is a place underneath the door to allow for a footrest to go under if there's no clearance on one side for the wheelchair to maneuver to pull it open. This is the inside of the stall, and again, though it may not look it, it's actually five feet wide, which is the turning circle or turning diameter to allow a wheelchair to turn around and maneuver and go out of a space. 
the whole idea of the restroom stall in an accessible restroom is to allow a person to use all the features uh, in an accessible manner, finish, go out. Here's a, a view of the door from the inside. You'll notice it's got an accessible handle of a third type and also a latch. And uh, the door is supposed to uh, self-close. Here's a, a view of a urinal. And I, I threw this in here because what you're looking at is an alcove. Often urinals don't have to be in an alcove if there's enough space in the bathroom. Um, this particular bathroom does not have enough space. And alcoves are one of the few areas where people in wheelchairs are expected to be able to back out. Uh, they have to be a certain width. And um, the idea is that you can back out in a way where you might hit a wall on the way back. It's impossible uh, unless you're really used to backing up a wheelchair to get out without hitting something. But it's designed with a width that allows you to eventually get out and turn around and go out of the restroom. Here's a, an accessible laboratory with knee space, uh, room to approach the controls and use the sink, the mirrors at a certain height that allows a person in a wheelchair um, to see themselves. Here's um, one type of um, accessible drinking fountain. You'll note this in an alcove, and it also is mounted at a certain height, and it has a push bar on the front of it because you're not supposed to have to grasp or pinch things in order to use an, an item like a, a drinking fountain. Here's another type. This is uh, what's called a high-low fountain. The higher one is for people with um, back troubles. I have a bad back myself, and I really appreciate this kind of um, idea. You don't have to stoop to use it. What's wrong in this picture, unfortunately, is that there's a trash can underneath there. So if you were in a wheelchair, you'd have a hard time using this. Okay, here are the administrative buttons. I don't have enough time uh, to get into all of them. There are 11 of them. They're online. They're also in the San Francisco Building Code, which you can, I believe you can get a copy of that at Stacy's Bookstore. Uh, the only one I, I really want to talk about is AB56, the very latest um, administrative bulletin. This allows, um, I'm going to use a downtown high-rise as an example. This allows a downtown high-rise to come in with a full set of path to travel plans, exclusive usually of the office, uh, the individual offices. But um, we'll give a path to travel for the main features of the building. And in effect, it records that path of travel, this permit that they bring in, for a period of three years uh, because we expect that codes can change within three years. Um, we retain a copy of that set of plans, and then every time an architect or an engineer comes in with a uh, plan for an office renovation, which in the high-rise building can occur dozens of times in a year, uh, the path of travel certification is on hand, the architect or engineer does not have to bring in a full set of uh, accessibility drawings. And I encourage you, if any of you are architecture engineers working on downtown buildings, to look into this. The Access Appeals Commission, as I mentioned before, um, hears appeals based on the denial of unreasonable hardship requests. And um, I'm the person that puts together the cases for the commission, and I sort of oversee it for the department. So we'll open up to questions and answers. Uh, if there aren't any, I can always go back to one of the slides if you want more information. Yes? 
I'll offer a suggestion about the benefits of access that I think might be more compelling. But first I'll go to the access problem with this building. The elevators are in stealth mode. They don't ding. And so the blind can't know whether the elevator is there, into the front, left, or right. I tried it several floors, totally silent. I hope somebody follows up on that real quick. The suggestion I had, though, about the benefits of access, too often people take the image, it's for wheelchair users when you put in ramps or lifts or accessible bathrooms. DBI might help sell the issue of compliance if people understood there's a larger group that benefits. If you have a baby in a stroller and a toddler, an accessible bathroom is tremendous because then one kid can use the toilet while you change the baby, the parent can use it. You also can attract in more customers to your store for your products or services if a parent with a baby and a stroller and a toddler, because I raised two kids on my own. I'm saying that because people often view wheelchair users as too few in number and maybe not so money-laden, whereas lots of moms and dads have to spend lots of money on the kids. That's not part of code compliance, but it's part of the explanation of the benefits to society of access. You're absolutely right. When I said in the very beginning of my slides that, um, you know, when you make your place more accessible, then you're opening up to a larger group of people, I also meant, yes, um, moms or dads with strollers. And that's very true, and we didn't bring this out, but the disabled access code requirements are not just for wheelchair users. It's, it's for people who have a vision or hearing impairment and other disabilities, and the code actually address all those as well. I've got a few questions. The first one is, since Title 24 is a state, state law, will I find significant differences from city to city? In no. terms of the requirements? Okay. The answer is no. Uh, California state law is state law. You may find things like our administrative bulletins in other cities, um, but, yeah, the major differences occur between ADA and Title 24, as Susan mentioned before. And with respect to the thresholds, can I do several upgrades in a year as long as all of them are below the threshold? Well, like we talked about, about the three-year inclusive, um, we will count all those upgrades in a year to um, look against the threshold amount. So if you're doing three, say, permits in a year, and they're all $50,000, and so really you have 150 total, um, we would look at that to see whether you're under or over the threshold. So that threshold applies to upgrades each year? What's a three, year. three years? Got yeah. it. All right. right. Um, the next question is with respect to that, that screen you had where there was a new bathroom upstairs, that means, for example, in a mixed-use building, if I added a bathroom in a residence upstairs, I'd have to meet code, uh, new requirements for the stairs going up to that well, unit? Well, if you're adding restrooms to a residence, then that's different. You know, we were concentrating on um, commercial you know, occupancies here. So mixed-use buildings would not fall into that commercial? Mixed-use, depending on which area you're talking about. The residential have 11A as the guideline in terms of regulating that, and then the commercial portion would have 11B. So we have to look at it separately depending on the use of that space. 
Okay. Uh, let me make one quick comment on that. Uh, in 11A, once you, you've done the work, the building is built, there are no further upgrades required. There's a little bit of a com a little bit of confusion about whether you add a new unit to the building, um, and we're up in the air about that. But you can add a bed, uh, bathroom or a bedroom or whatever you want to an existing unit. One final question is, when I'm looking at a property in order to price everything, do, does your website have resources where I can find out how, how much this is going to cost before making an offer? <laughs> Uh, well, Our website doesn't have, yeah, doesn't um, have in terms of cost, yeah. You, ha you have to look at the San Francisco building code. Uh, I'm assuming you're talking about permit fees and things like that. No, the, the specific Title 24 requirements, how much extra that's going to cost me in order to, to come oh, up. Oh, yeah, no, we don't have anything like that. You, that's something you would have to figure out or figure out with an architect or engineer. My name is Felicious Wyatt, Jr., and my question um, is regarding switchbacks and whether there is a height limit and or limit on the number of levels of switchbacks that can be used on the, thank you, on, okay, on the outside of, uh, of a structure. Technically, no. Um, the only limitation is that you can't rise more than 30 inches without having a landing. So at a 112 slope, that would be every 30 feet. Good afternoon. My name is Jackie Price, and this is like old home week for me. Hi, Nancy. Hi, Neil. I have an interesting question for both of you. Back on December 22 of 2005, 75 Doré, which is the Folsom Door Apartments, was cited by uh, Jim Hutchinson for the difficulty we were having with the ingress, egress door into the lobby off of our courtyard. And the 30 days have come and gone, and we're almost coming up on a year ago that this was written, and nothing has been done on that. Do I need to file a new complaint regarding that particular matter, which was um, noticed back in uh, December of 2005, or what is the appropriate next step for me short of filing a claim against the city and county of San Francisco for having this building not being in compliance? Uh, no, you do not have to file a new complaint. And if it's the property I'm thinking about, um, the issue there is that the building is going to be torn down. But I'm not the building just completely opened. intimate with the, with the complaint, so I, I don't know. Okay, because the, the second part was when I tried to do follow-up. I was told that for whatever reason, and I tried to do the follow-up, I think it was February of this year, 2006, that the complaint from December of 2005 never made it into the computer? Uh, I, that I couldn't answer, but I would uh, say you need to come back to the department and check it out. When you do a, when you do a certificate um, on a commercial building, is there a tolerance, um, dimensional tolerances? For example, if you, if you do a survey and the, and the drinking fountain is a quarter of an inch shorter and, or taller than the state codes, is that acceptable, or does it have to be adjusted a quarter inch? If they're within the, the tolerances of our uh, administrative bulletin 17, it's okay. Right. And thank you for attending.